This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial grade AI. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of our Industrial AI Podcast. My name is Robert Weber, and it's a pleasure to talk to Peter Seberg. Good morning, and a happy New Year to you and to all our listeners, Robert. Yeah, thank you. A happy to, Happy New Year to you too, Peter. It was it's a pleasure to talk to you. We have a lot of interesting episodes planned this year. Let's. Start. Did you see the uh, the amazing result we had with Festor? Oh, I wow. sent you this morning yeah. on YouTube. Over 10,000 new yeah. listeners. That yeah. was amazing. It was really amazing. I got a lot of emails from my robotics colleagues about Festo and the ideas of Festo. It was very, very interesting. I'm looking forward to the next episodes with you. It's very, very interesting. So welcome to, to you, uh, YouTube listeners. I'm not sure what that means. You you know a lot better uh, this market, uh, Robert. I mean, we started with through Podigy and then we have what you call the, the podcast catchers, I believe. So it's like Apple and, uh, and Spotify and the other ones. But we've always been doing YouTube, I believe, but maybe not so actively. And then we swapped from German to English. So now we're welcoming all these people from around the world who are more regular YouTube users, I assume, or... Yeah, sure, sure. We have more guys who uh, said, I want to get informed when a new episode comes out. So we are looking forward to hear from you. Uh, you can write us an email, robert at aipod.de or peter at aipod.de. Can they leave a comment as well? Under, yeah, for they example, can leave a comment also, okay. yeah. Okay, good. And are we going to be doing video at some point in time? Or are we going to oh, stick to the... Peter, no, Peter, no, no, no. Peter. No, I'm I agree. happy that I your agree, microphone agree, is working now. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I agree. We're, we're gonna, for the moment, we're going to stick to, um, to radio kind of uh, podcast. Yeah. Very good. Let's start. I have one question, Peter. What will be the most important topic on industrial AI in 2023? Oh, the most important topic of the day we're going to be talking about today. And is that going to be the one as well? That is one. So chat GPT, right? Not from the beginning, 100% plus. Most certainly not. There's uh, things we can do with it, things we cannot do with it. That's number one. So uh, coming out of that, uh, maybe then is the most important thing for the year or for the next couple of years is to work on reasoning-based prompt solutions. That's maybe the one. And or, you know, we started looking at models, you know, a year or two ago, and I was going to ask you anyway, there is a thing, there's a conference or a happening uh, that we still need to talk about if, if we're going to be um, going there on in an industrial environment. Well, what is the role of, you know, AI-based models? That's still the two things that I think about. What are you thinking about? I think about uh, generative AI. Okay, yeah. Uh, sure. using, using these technology to, to build new products, new solutions. I, it was very interesting. What we heard from Jan and from Festo about generative AI, I think there's a huge potential on this topic too. I agree. I actually had one or two on, on the topic of generative uh, in this morning's uh, calendar, but decided that's what we're going to be doing right now to concentrate on ChatGPT. But I completely agree. So if, if we look at it, you know, DALI is, you know, the sister product of uh, ChatGPT. So whatever is generative, maybe not sure where, where are we splitting them is, um, yeah, maybe it is right. Maybe ChatGPT is a different 
category from uh, we'll come to that in a moment actually um, so but we're looking into the same direction i guess yeah i don't, don't know if you recognize because open ai also offers now 3d models on dali yeah i saw that yeah, yeah. <laughs> amazing that's very interesting but that's very important for the industry That's amazing, yeah. So maybe we talk about that later or also one of the next episodes because then you now talk about a guy who, you know, built the first wireframe models, right? That's probably 30, 35, 40. Can I really say that I'm so old years ago? That's really amazing. That was computer added, in my case, architectural design. And now, as you say, you know, we, we come to the point whereby, you know, a, a designer slash or the engineer, you know, or the, the more technic, technical oriented person is then going to say, okay, you know, show me what I can do. Uh, oh, Dan, and, and by the way, now combine it and make sure that it, it makes sense from a technical perspective as well, right? And that's amazing, of course, right? Yeah. I'm very impressed by that, yeah. And so I think it's very important. It could be the most important topic for industry. Let's, uh, let's see. Yeah, let's see. We'll, we'll, we'll check again at the end of the year if our thoughts were right or if there's going, going to be another you know, amazing uh, technology coming in from the side that is even going to be more mind-blowing than what we're talking about today. But you mentioned ChatGPT is different to DALI. What is the difference? Well, let me put it this way, if I may. So, I, so well, for whatever reason, I came up with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, and then I thought, what is that all about? What is that quote about? Do you, you recall what the good, the bad, and the ugly is? No, no. You don't. It's a movie. You know, ah, it's probably, yeah. you may have seen it in, well, it's, I look back, it's from 66. It's a spaghetti western. It was one <laughs> yeah. of the, yeah, it's the yeah. typical, of course, with Ennio, what's his name? Morricone, right? That's yeah, the Morricone. Name. He, yeah. he makes the music. The music, uh, yeah. Uh, what's his name? He's now mayor in uh, somewhere in the United States there on the coast. Uh, what's his name? The, the guy who does the, uh, the number one actor doing the, the, the spaghetti westerns. I forgot. So we're not talking about that today. So what I'm talking about the good, the bad, and the big business. So uh, concentrating first on the good. Sure. I mean, the, the one and only thing and really everybody and everywhere, you know, talking about these days, you cannot open LinkedIn is what I concentrate oh, yeah. on. Uh, it's amazing, right? You know, everybody and, you know, everybody and their mother and their father sharing thousands ways to, number one, to increase your efficiency. That's what I would call the category, efficiency improvement, something like that, right? I haven't seen a category kind of definition yet. So uh, it looks as though with, you know, one single approach, the long talked about, you know, and that was RPA. We called it robotic process automation. Maybe that's the name of the category. You know, it, it landed on earth. I mean, I talked about it and with your support, you know, the book two years ago, and it was at that time RPA. And I said, you know, algorithms taking over from humans, our so-called, what I call zero value add, you know, humans, we, wherever we work, right? Typically more in administrative, but also everywhere else, you know, we look for data somewhere in a, in an office environment. Then we, we copy it and we paste it into a different format, right? That's what we do all day from morning till afternoon. Many of us, not, not, not all at the same level. And then we pass it on to the next stage or instance. And that, 
that was the idea we said is going to be taking over by. And now there's ChatGPT, which is, of course, not just doing this, this very easy thing. But let me, let me just share for those of you listeners that maybe have been, let's say, spending the holidays on a deserted island somewhere, you know, with no internet connections. I'm just going to call out 10 or 15 and then we make a break and then we talk about it. And this is still about the, I would say the positive side of the chat GPT. And then later on, we come to the negative, you know, the ugly. There is a very ugly face to chat GPT as well. Hey guys, I have to interrupt Peter for a moment because we have an important information for you. You have to attend the Siemens AI with Purpose Summit. When? On 16 and 17 May 23. Where? In Munich. Festo, Bosch, OPC Foundation, Arburg, IoT Analytics and many other industrial users will be there. If you want to be there, we have five tickets. First come, first serve. Write us a message or an email, robert at aipod.de or peter at aipod.de or a LinkedIn message or what else. Thank you very much. And now back to Peter. There is a very ugly face to ChatGPT as well. Think about ask ChatGPT to create an advertising campaign. You know, I've, I've been in that business. You are still kind of in that, that business. Ask it to come up with powerful, meaningful rapper lyrics you know maybe you're a rapper you know ask it to do it for you ask it to act as a user interface developer ask it to develop a new product you know you asked me a couple of minutes ago what is the the, the biggest thing and you said generative ai yeah sure <laughs> and you can you can go to a direct solution or ask ChatGPT to ask to design to come up with ideas for the new product or service for you. You're a cybersecurity specialist. Ask it, you know, to come up with ideas for you. Ask it to be a doctor, you know, to come up with, uh, with creative treatments. And of course, you know, did I, did I forget to, to mention your listener job title? No, there's some so many, many more, right? So don't be sad, dear listener. You know, if you did not hear your profession mentioned, you know, I'm completely convinced that as far as this side, you know, the efficiency improvement is concerned, uh, chat GPT in its category, not only this one, there's going to be, I think there's going to be hundreds of this kind of solution, especially, and we come to that at the end, because it's from open AI, as still as the organization still wants to be open, you know, everybody uh, should be able uh, to use it. So I would suggest before we then get to the bad side, you know, let's chat about this a little bit. Chat. Yeah, chat GPT. Chat GPT. Now, once again, what do you think is the difference between DALI and chat GPT? Is it both generative AI or what is the difference? I mean, DALI is the is graphics, you yeah. know, image sure. based, whereas uh, chat GPT is a is a prompter. Like, yeah. So you ask chat GPT to do things for you to come up with ideas which are then written. So it's text-based. Uh, and Ali and all the other ones, you know, the mid journey and the stable diffusion. I think I've been looking at that one and again, because I, I didn't find the other one and I was very impressed as well. You know, I studied architecture as, as yeah, I have said, you know, I studied computer at the design architecture and there was one job we had to do is build 
uh, a home on the North Sea, you know, Netherlands side. And I had this idea that you could would look over the dunes, over the sea, and then on the backside, you would be behind the dunes, right? And that's what I gave in. And it came up with images. I was blown away. I was really blown away. And this is exactly what I mentioned before. Of course, I'm not, not only talking 30, 40 years ago, people who do this work today, you know, architects as an example, but anybody listening in the industrial environment. So I think the Dali type of creative and creative, I think I wouldn't limit it to, but it's especially known for whatever imagery. And you can, of course, do the same thing with music. You know, we've had our friend doing this with Tristan, yes. Yeah, with Bach music or other kind of music before, that's it. And I think uh, ChatGPT is like a, a prompter. Uh, and what we just discussed is it to help it for yeah improving efficiency slash also you can use it. It might become a front end to many other things because uh, you can ask it to generate the optimized, again, efficiency improvement verbiage for mid-journey or for DALI or for stable diffusion. Because, you know, the again, already in the meantime of two months, there are certain people who be have become the specialist in how to exactly write these prompts for the different graphic imagery, you know, solutions. And then you ask DALI to do that for you. And does it ex in, in a perfect way better that you can ever do it? I read an, an article. Now we come to the bad side, maybe, of, of ChatGPT. Yeah. It was a very tr interesting article from Gary Marcus. I think most of our listeners know Gary. And uh, I want to comment on, on ChatGPT. I will put the, the article into the show notes. Everybody can read it. It was in the New York Times. You get better approximations to the sound of language, to the sequence of word, But we are not actually making that much progress on truth. Yeah, completely true. And that's very diplomatic. Yeah. You know, I, I want to be careful because we are a very professional uh, podcast and I don't want to be too direct. Now, Dutch people are very, very direct. So, but to put it more, I mean, if I use the word nonsensical, which is a diplomatic word for nonsense, I believe. And that word comes from open AI, right? They say it themselves. So I, we can use it here. So the, the very bad, the very, very ugly side of chat GPT is that if you use it as a prompter, you ask, you ask it knowledge, you ask information about this world around us, it will come with complete nonsense. And it does so in a very uh, authoritative way. That's the bad thing. You, you read it and you think, oh, wow. That's amazing. Now, but what it says, the contents may be correct, but many times is complete and utter nonsense. And that is, of course, very, very dangerous. And that is what, and Gary is, yeah, as you said, he's probably the most well-known. I did ask Gary if he would um, be interested to, um, to be on our podcast. He hasn't answered yet. Gary, if you're listening, if one of your colleagues at your New York University is listening. We're very interested to have you on the show, of course. So what can I what can I say? I'm very, I must almost say, frustrated. And we come to uh, to Mr. Altman, CEO of OpenAI, at the end. But I'm 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 very frustrated. I mean, how can you how can you allow how can you be so irresponsible? I, I must say, to put such a half baked nonsense generating tool for consumers on the market. 
And that is the thing. We, we had a quick talk, talk about it, I believe, at the end of the year. And then we, you know, there was this group of young people, you know, 25 years old. They were completely yeah, yeah. impressed. And that's good. But the, but the, the first category of the efficiency improvement. But at the same time, I felt that they had no clue about the nonsensical part of the chat GPT, you know, providing answers. And that is, that is a serious problem. So when I, at the beginning, suggested that, you know, the most important thing that we should be doing, now, if that's going to be happening, uh, you know, many AI professionals are working on it, that we need to come to a, a reasoning base, you know, a graph, a, a symbolic base reason based a prompt solution of which we then know is going to be giving you know answers that at least have a relationship to our world uh, not i mean many people are working on it how far we've we haven't uh, come with a solution there yet but it's very very dangerous and i would almost say it's in, it's imperative uh, that this ugly side is going to be i don't know improved stopped who am i it's out there right but at least i believe it needs to become regulated what else do we have yeah okay but i do want to yeah so the yeah. final thing is then the close off is then the big business thing it's just yeah, like microsoft um, announced some yeah, things yeah oh is it microsoft well i think that openai themselves they are looking for uh, possibly i think it's a wall street journal article there and they have entered talks to sell shares and then there was somewhere this, you know, 29 billion. So the question is, is OpenAI really worth 29 billion? And it's very much relates to your opening question. And what is the biggest thing in industrial then, of course, that's the next thing in AI that we're looking at. And it is, of course, today's ChatGPT with all the plus and all the negative uh, things that we just talked about. And then the question is, yeah, is somebody, our companies, other companies, in addition to Microsoft, but we shouldn't forget, I think also Amazon, but also Google and a couple of other ones are supporting the open AI organization. Of course, Microsoft is number one, and they have been set to be including already ChatGPT into their Bing search. So it's their way they it's being set and being rumored that they can, you know, come apart with uh, with Google. So that's maybe the, the, the close off of this part of the conversation. What do you think? Is it, are they worth twenty nine billion uh, or two hundred? 90 billion, I don't know. What do you think? It's all about expectations you have on this technology. And we both know that in our industrial companies, industrial sectors, it would take a long time to find solutions where you use ChatGPT. I think that we will see it not tomorrow, next week or next month. It takes a long time to do it. Sure, but let's, maybe that's my close-off thought then on this one. And I shared it before, I believe that, was it maybe six months ago, there was a, was that the, the specific, I forgot the name, uh, in GitHub, there is a, a tool um, that helps the, you know, the software coders. Uh, and at that time, I share that on LinkedIn, and I, I, I you know, triggered kind of a shit, a shit storm, right? You know, who do I believe that that's ever gonna happen? And then we've talked about this before, and now I must say, and of course, because it's always the same that, you know, the majority of the people who are around technologies like OpenAI, ChatGPT, are the software developers. You know, they are the first people to know about it because they have developed it, right? So they talk about it in their own circles of friends and community, etc. 
But now in the meantime, you know, you see there's nothing of a shitstorm. I mean, certain people are afraid, whatever. I don't think there's no reason to be afraid. Just that is the important thing that we do talk about it. And also for our listeners in industry, and even if, if the first products are only going to come out in two years, that's, you know, but, but would you certain i mean the listeners you need to be looking into it and that's what the the software coders are saying today you know they become sometimes some of them say i become 10 times more efficient you know <laughs> think about what that means you know somebody's asking you for a quote and yesterday you said okay give me ten thousand dollars i'm going to doing a b c d e <laughs> and, and the next time this is only going to be worth you know one one thousand dollars or the other way around you can do 10 times as many things. So that is something we need to think about on the positive side and on the negative side. Let's make sure that not only you and I, that's what we're doing, right? Is this uh, that we are going to be, you know, telling the world what ChatGPT, what the different categories, I would say, of these software tools are capable and that and that we tell the public, you know, and I believe still the majority of our listeners are professionals, but even if not so, you know, you're very, very, very welcome uh, to listen in. Uh, also, if you're a consumer, not directly using the technology. Professionals are also consumers, yeah. <laughs> Uh, at, the, at the same time, sure, yeah, yeah. you know, their dads and their yeah. mamas and their friends and whatever yeah. they live, they, they live on this earth. Yeah. And please let us know, let Robert and me know what you think we should be doing. But I believe it's very, very important that we also inform the world uh, of its uh, potential uh, danger in the category of the, uh, of the prompting. What else do we have? The first week is always very quiet, but today there was an announcement, I think very interesting announcement concerning our friend Sepp Hochreiter because there's a new Alice program and uh, Johannes Kepler University is a Spearheads AI molecular research in Europe. And it's coordinated by, by Zep and uh, together with Oxford, Cambridge, Zurich, Berlin Charité, and in cooperation with AstraZeneca, and they will share experience and even computer code. So Zep is focusing on research, or his group is focusing on research on AI molecular research in Europe. That's very interesting, I think. Okay. I did read an article from Zap as well. He was at, what was that? Is it called Future AT or something? But I, I did read about more general about your AI in Europe for those listeners, but well, not only Europe in this case, because I think bottom line, what came out was uh, European universities, they attract uh, a lot of uh, people uh, with bachelors from Eastern and Asian uh, countries. And then we, many of those, after then they've done their master or even their PhD in Europe, uh, many of them then move on, number one, to, what do you think? Uh, to what the country? big tech companies. Yes. In what country? Uh, USA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the <laughs> no main point. I thought it was very interesting, right? So we are kind of a, what is it? A, you know, a, a through country, right? You know, we, we attract from the Eastern market, many people with base uh, education, you know, we attract them with their bachelor, for example, then they do a couple of years, four, five, six, seven years, master, PhD, and then many of them, which is sad, of course, but we've heard that from Zep as well, many of them, um, not only, but many of them do move on to, as you said, the big tech companies in the United States, or may stay here, but many of them do go to the United States to their 
uh, to the head offices. Yeah, I read that also on Twitter. There was a discussion about that topic that we lose our PhDs and what we can do in this topic. Yeah. Right. Let's start with the main part. We have a very special guest, uh, Patrick van der Smark from Volkswagen. It was a pleasure to talk to him. Peter, thank you very much for the discussion with you about ChatGPT. I think it was not our last discussion about ChatGPT, <laughs> but I hope <laughs> that sure in the enough. next few weeks you go to holidays and we won't talk about <laughs> ChatGPT. <laughs> yeah, that I will be spending. I actually will be spending a time on, I mean, it's actually an island. <laughs> You're right. But, uh, but normally as things go these days, It's almost like one criteria is that you check for um, for conductivity, right? So, yeah, yeah I, I agree. And, you know, I, I do hope that those listeners that have come so far now uh, and say, oh, what is that all about? And we could do nothing. Uh, do not believe that, please. I mean, it's like on the two sides, right? Don't think that this is so far away from my job. You know, we've been saying all the time, all jobs are going to be changed. And what we're seeing here is such a big a confirmation one side and the other side please join us in making sure that the world uh, knows that uh, the prompt business side of the chat gpt and other ones is a very very dangerous uh, tool that we need to be very very careful with uh, applying thank you and enjoy the main part yep thank you robert have a good day and also our listeners have a good day and talk to you next week We have a very special guest today, Professor Patrick van der Smart, uh, Director of AI Research at Volkswagen. Hello, Patrick. Patrick is more correct than Patrick. Thank you very much. Good morning. Okay. But uh, the pronunciation of your last name was correct now. That was quite good, yes. Yeah, yeah. So you're from the Netherlands. What a Dutch guy is doing at Volkswagen? Well, I, first of all, I'm not the only one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I've been living in uh, in Germany for quite a while, over 20 years now. And why not Volkswagen, right? I've been actually in research all of my life. So when I moved to Germany, I first joined DLR, the German Aerospace Center in Oberpfaffenhofen, close to Munich, and uh, stayed there for, for a very long time, enjoying my, my research there and so on. But then gradually moved more in the direction of research. So I went to Technical University of Munich stayed there for a few years and then got asked by Volkswagen to build up a research lab, a uh, fundamental research lab on machine learning. And you have two email addresses. One leads to Volkswagen and the other leads to argmax.ai, correct? I, well, I think I've got 10 email addresses. Okay. But those are the, the main ones I use uh, professionally. I've got, a, got two other professional ones. Why don't you briefly explain argmax.ai to us and what you do there and how Volkswagen benefits from it? So my lab, and I've called it ArcMax when, uh, when I was in Volkswagen, my lab focuses on machine learning research. And, and machine learning is a branch of science, if you want, that looks into exploiting Uh, relationships between data and creating some kind of explanation for it. Explanation is a, is a popular term. I would normally say a model for it, but I would maybe more accurately say a, a generative uh, explanation, meaning that I can have a short form of capturing those data, what they express, and also use that short form to recognize new data, but also generate new data that is similar to the other one, to the ones I've, I've learned from. And that's something which is extremely mathematical in its nature. So that's, that's probability theory, which, which is your main tool there. 
but it's also extremely computer sciencey. So you do not only need the probability theory and the mathematics there, but you also need the software tools to make that compute. And once you have those two things, then you have some kind of tool with which you can play with these with these data, right? And, and having a large data set is nice, but it's very inconvenient because you can't search in it and you can't use it. So you have to make that in this compact form with which you can compute. And then you can do something. Now, you can do that in a university, which is absolutely perfectly okay. But what is very difficult in a university or, or any research environment, which is publicly funded, is using those things for some real, real application. And a real, real application with that, I mean, well, it, it can be something in production. It can be also something in the, in the medical field. It can be something to, uh, I don't know, uh, explain uh, neutrino stars or anything like that. It, that doesn't really matter. But to advance, let me say, our society and our environment in some way which, uh, which we like. And so the nice thing of machine learning is that the distance between the theory and the application is is relatively short compared to most other sciences that I know of. What approaches in the field of machine learning are you looking at, Volkswagen? You, you mentioned production, and then we have this huge topic, autonomous driving. Nothing in that direction. What we're looking at is time series modeling and uh, prediction, right? So I have a stream of data and I try to understand, in quotes, right? So model that stream of data and then make predictions of what will happen in the future. So that's that's it. It's very simple. And that has, I think, the most wide field of applicability that you can think of because that is exactly what biological systems like ourselves are doing if you're walking outside or you're cycling outside and you try to to reach your goal what your cortex is doing all the time is taking in these sensory impulses using those to predict what's going to happen in the next uh, next few seconds and use that prediction to make then an optimal plan in order to, well, to survive in the most basic thing, but in order to get somewhere fast and safe and, and what have you. And now this principle of getting in a sequence of data from your vision sensor, from your auditory sensor, from your olfactory sensors, from your tactile sensors, and using those to predict what will happen in the future allows you to make optimal decisions. Now, I can take that principle, and I could, in theory, put it in an autonomous uh, car if, if you would want to do that. That's absolutely not my field. But you can also do that in, for instance, optimizing production, because I want to, to save energy in some part of my production process, in my robot move movement, for instance, because I know what's going to happen in the next few seconds, so I can now take more optimized decision on what to do. And those things work. So you are doing a basic research, or what is it? Yes, we do the basic research, and then we take that basic research. So the research we do is not directly guided by any application. So it's not that, that somebody comes with an application to us, and then we say, well, okay, let's look into that and see what, uh, what research is. We turn it around. We are experts in these latent state space models, as, uh, as I would call them as a technical term, so these time-predicting uh, models, neural network-based models. And then we also have uh, collaborate with other departments in Volkswagen Group to bring those two applications in the group, but also applications outside of, uh, of Volkswagen. 
we're not xenophobic there. So when you scan the landscape of machine learning, what are you looking for at the moment? Which paradigms of machine learning are interesting? This is an extremely broad question. There is currently, of course, a huge interest in these uh, large generative models, right? Uh, your, your GPT and, uh, and all of those related models. What's your opinion on that? It's interesting, it's fascinating, and I think it's extremely important that we understand and deploy those models correctly, right? I mean, I mean, if those things work so nicely nowadays that uh, people immediately start abusing them for things uh, where they are not very useful, like in question and answer system and so on and so forth, they're extremely good in generating images or videos or music or text or any of those things that baffle our mind, but do not necessarily have the causality that we're looking for. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great tool, and, and I'm happy they're there, but you should know how to use them. It's still a tool. Patrick, can I ask you maybe to uh, clarify for our listeners and for us as well? And, you know, I've, I've got a thought there, but if, if you could maybe confirm. So you concentrate on time series. So that's one group of one approach, I'd say. Now, then we've got the large language models, and they... They have a very structural, different way of dealing with data, you know, looking into the data, finding patterns. You know, from my perspective, the large language models mean sometimes being called stochastic parrots, you know, always looking for the next word. Isn't that a completely structurally different approach from what you typically do with time series prediction? Yeah, up to a certain level, yes, but there are also quite some similarities, right? I mean, if you if you derogatory say uh, it's just a stochastic machine, well, what is our brain then? I'm not so 100% sure where the difference, what our cortex does uh, and what these models do lie. It's certainly not identical, but... Where is the difference? I wouldn't dare to answer that straight away. The kind of problems that my lab is looking into is are more related to the physical world. So if I'm, I'm looking into a machine or a robot moving, then these machines typically have some physical characteristics, and, and those are well described by, by Newtonian physics, for instance, right? And that allows you, if, if you understand a bit of those physics or know a bit of those physics of those, those systems, then it's quite easy or, or easier to predict the future. And, and language is similar in, in that way, that there is also some kind of structure, but it's, of course, totally different, uh, and you need a different way of describing it than, than uh, from a physical system moving, right? So we have decidedly gone a different direction than many other people in machine learning go. So, so reinforcement learning, it's, it's very typical to learn everything about your system just from observing it. But what we do is we try to combine your known physics. So if I'm looking at a robot arm moving, for instance, that robot arm has a very accurate description in terms of a number of simple equations that have been used in robotics for the last 50 years uh, that you can use. Now, many people in machine learning then say, well, yeah, that's nice, but I can also learn it. Yeah, you can learn it, but it's not very efficient to learn that if you already have those. So what we explicitly look at is, is how can you combine existing knowledge of physical systems with machine learning 
in order to get the most accurate and, and long-term prediction of how a specific machine moves. And that also allows you in explainability of those models, right? Because once you do that, then I can say, well, yeah, right, that there is this, this black box component neural network in there, and I've got 10 of those. But with each of these, I can put the equations of the physics of my system in and use that to explain what my neural network is actually learning. And that's what Nicely. And an understanding of the phys uh, physical word physics is, is one way. That is the area I, I understand you're concentrating on. And I'm not sure I want to, you know, reopen this box, but when we had Sepp Hochreiter, I believe you know him, uh, Jürgen Schmidt, who were with us, and we talked about the original, you know, symbolic, you know, 1950s, 60s, 70s maybe, and we got into an AI winter, and then came the sub-symbolic, you know, more the machine learning. And nowadays, so Zepp sa says, you know, he is looking at bringing the two worlds together again. And that's my feeling of, you know, applying knowledge of the world to machine learning. Jürgen said he has never made that difference, right? He doesn't care. He never made an explicit split between the two. So that would be my feeling exactly because I come out of the world of the time series as well in production, that that is exactly lacking today with With these large language models that if we would be able to 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 provide them with knowledge in one way or the other you know the symbolic knowledge that they would then maybe you know start uh, giving us more realistic more times realistic answers that you know have a meaning to us and not sometimes complete nonsense you're absolutely right and yes those models are extremely valuable and powerful but You have to be extremely careful in interpreting and using what comes out of them because you, you just have no idea, right, what they what they generate and, and why that is generated in that way. And and you can't steer it. And and I think that's the that's the most challenging with these with these large complex models is that There's no way of steering the, them and also no way of repairing them if they make mistakes. So, yeah, fascinating, but we still have to learn how to embed those in our daily work. Yeah, well, that's that's a, the thought I would have as well. But then I'm not as deep into it as as you are. And, you know, we, we talked about it before, uh, Robert. I had this group of young people who were finishing, you know, a course I gave them. They were completely impressed by what, for example, the chat cheap. PT was doing for them. They, you know, they told him, you know, build this website, and you know, 10 seconds later, the website was ready. For which maybe until then they had used half an hour. And when I brought up this discussion of, you know, not always is it giving you a correct answer in as, you know, what is the truth? You know, who knows what the truth is? But sometimes it's so obviously blatantly wrong, and even OpenAI says so specifically. So that is that is a big danger, I believe. So what what can I suggest? Maybe they should look at, you know, the kind of work then that you do, for example, Patrick, um, you know, bringing in, in your case, it's physics. But of course, then the physical world is only one part of, or is it, is it, maybe is, that would be an approach, combining those two worlds. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 only one one part of it. But as as you also said, right? I mean, SAP is indeed also in in that field. That combination of machine learning and computational models, existing engineered models where we have them, is is of course the best way to go. As long as you can do that, and I find it wonderful that this is possible nowadays, and that we can use that to not only 
get more explainable or more understandable models, but also uh, have models that that work much much better, learn much faster than years ago. I mean, we can we can now learn a model in a few minutes to control a drone or or a robot arm and things like that. Absolutely unthinkable. 10, 20 years ago. We talk about these big foundation models. Why there's no such thing from the automotive industry, a big foundation model on automotive? What do you want to do with that? I don't know. Is there an idea to put approaches, ideas, how to use a factory to build a foundation model from the product line to optimize product lines? Is it an opportunity to do that? No, you're now a, a, a bit looking at using a, a, a big hammer to just... Uh, randomly hit about you and i wouldn't do that no so these foundation models i i hate a word but let's let's play with that because people use that why do you hate that word because it doesn't say anything and it's, it's like deep learning also such a term which is just popularizing uh, things that shouldn't be maybe large language models is the other term as much it's better at least yeah i, I would say currently large because yeah. Two years from now, they're not large anymore. <laughs> right. um, anyway, back to the topic. These are all in the realm of end-to-end -end learning, right? You try to represent a complete problem from the beginning to the end, which you very much understand in part, into one big monolithic model. And yeah, you get something. And then what, right? B because I, this system gives me a solution, which I cannot interpret, which I cannot, uh, the quality of which I cannot quantify. So I don't know how good my result is. I don't know how to improve on it. I don't know if there is, uh, if there is a better, simpler solution around the corner. As nice as it is, but an answer without quality is not better than no answer at all, I think. So I wouldn't know what to gain from that. And production is a beast, right? You know that as well. Yeah, sure. But there are ideas of selling models, for example. If you have a, a special machine uh, and you can sell these models from a machine, do you think a market will be increased to sell AI models to the industry? Of course, that's that's already happening everywhere, isn't it? I'm not sure if it's already there because the machine building companies are not very focusing on selling models. No, but on, on purchasing them, right? Yeah. And that's a, that's a business case that is already being played with by Bosch and, and Siemens, for instance. Yeah, but it's a big one. But is it a possibility also for the mid-sized company to sell models that optimize your production? That's difficult. It's a difficult market to get into because if you look at machines that are used in production, for instance, those are typically being built by the larger companies uh, such as Siemens and Bosch or the, the robot manufacturers, right? And they usually sell their systems in a closed setup where they even own the data that comes out of the machine, even though you sell the machine to some production company. But often they retain the rights to the data that their machine creates. And let's be happy with the data act that the commission has put forth to address that problem. But that means that it is a closed system and as a small, medium enterprise, you do not have a very good chance of breaking that uh, those monopolies. So that's going to be hard. And then again, also the expertise uh, in people who do this kind of machine learning at this level, it's much better than it was 10 years ago, but still the salaries that those people earn is higher than you will find in uh, competitive, the, the SMEs that you have in Germany, for instance. So... It's not easy to hire somebody there and give them all the benefits that those people can get elsewhere. So AI models are something for the big players. Yeah, 
currently it looks like that. Patrick, I, w I was gonna, I had kind of prepared, I was gonna ask you a little bit about uh, autonomous driving. You say you're not a specialist, uh, but the only question then, and then you don't have to answer, uh, but, but my understanding would be, as you explained, that, you know, driving is, is one way of, as you said, you know, we can, we walk around, we, you know, we drink a cup of coffee, we, we, we do all these things and all of, and we generate time series all the time, right? Not only in factories, but all around us, basically. And m my question then is at least up until the point of, you know, isn't basically the way that the world, you know, including Volkswagen, I guess, is looking at solving, you know, autonomous driving towards level four. Isn't that basically also a, you know, a time series use case? Sure. The problem is in principle the same, but now if you get into, into autonomous driving, then the technical question is certainly not the only one to be answered. Yeah. Okay. Right. I mean, can, I can easily with the models that we uh, that we actually we, we have something like that running for a different. But I can I can get you your ninety five percent accuracy, right? But <laughs> you wouldn't get into that car. No, that is the answer that that I was going to ask you. I mean, and, and I still and maybe then we we only chat about it, you know, very shortly still because here we go. You know, three years ago. Robert and I did this podcast with former Professor Dickmans. Not sure that you have known him at the University yeah. of the Armed Forces yeah. here in Munich in Norbiberg. So, and you know, I think it's fair to say that he, in the in the eighties, nineties, with his team, basically, you know, invented, solved autonomous driving, cooperation with Mercedes, etc., etc., etc. Drove to Denmark on the French on the Paris Peripheric, and here we are, thirty years later. 10 to 20 generations, I don't know, of new hardware and software. And so, and then, and now I believe your answer is then going to be, okay, uh, Professor Dickmans and his team came to whatever, 80, 90%. And your answer would be then, it's so difficult to move towards the 100%. Is that the problem that the world is still dealing with? Well, first of all, he did level three, right? What we call level three now. So on the Autobahn or in structured environments. And that is already out there, right? You can purchase that from, from Mercedes now, for instance, and, and a few others. I think Audi had something like that a few years ago as well. So I would, for that level, say, well, it's more or less solved. Now, Anything that you see in in an urban environment for autonomous driving, that is for me a totally different situation because that would be the first time ever where we use a machine at eye level. So you, you engage with, with an autonomous car on the street as if it were another person, right? And I know of no other system that we have ever developed as uh, as mankind where you use a machine not as a tool but as a uh, as an as an equal i don't know if you know of any examples but i don't right so so that's for me principled quite 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 different and 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 it's 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 a wonderful idea to play with but i also understand why nobody dares to put that on the street in a serious way because it's it's just not there and it doesn't mean it it can't work I certainly believe that it could work. But, uh, you know, since I joined Volkswagen, which was in 2016, I've heard autonomous driving being on the street within three years. And I've heard that like four or five times. I've heard it last year again, or, or this year, that it would be on the street in 2025. I don't believe that. When I was at DLR, I, I heard everybody will have a robot at home uh, within five years. And I've heard that like every two years over there. And it's still not there.
we mentioned new paradigms of machine learning at the beginning. I want to come back to this point. Then we switch to ChatGPT. What new paradigms do you see? Well, so the major difference, I've, I've been doing machine learning since, uh, we called it neural networks back then, since the mid-1980s, right? Before my master's thesis, I, I worked on neural networks for uh, character recognition. And for my PhD thesis, I started on robotics and, and stuff like that. And the major difference between back then and right now is, is the scaling Meaning that all of those things that we wanted to do back then, even back then we talked about, well, if I take a, get a neural network and have a million neurons rather than just these 100 that we use now, it might probably work. And then, of course, nobody believed that, but now it appears that that's actually true. So the, the scaling is, is an important thing. But what I also see as a paradigm shift is that the skepticism in these models, uh, or maybe I'd rather call it realism, is, uh, is back again. And I find it healthy because now we can, can address those issues and can say, well, yeah, we know that, okay, machine learning is great and it has a great potential, but it is also risky if you are careless with how you use your data and how you do your training and how you do your deployment of your systems. And all of these things are now going hand in hand. So I, I would see the, the paradigm shifts is, is more at a meta level than at a, at a technical level. And that's nice. That's nice because, because that's really necessary to put those things in a broader set of applicability compared to uh, what we have been able to do so far. I, w I would almost say, ask you, uh, give me five examples of where machine learning is used in, in things that you, you, that you know of. And don't come with uh, voice recognition on your mobile phone, because we all know that one. And a few uh, image recognition things, right, running with the, in, in the, the GAFA tools. But otherwise, there's not so much out there. Let's look at three machine learning topics or approaches that you have realized in your lab can you mention three approaches you're working on yeah so one thing we have been pioneering is uh, latent state space models uh, starting 2015 or 16 and latent state space models and that's uh, that's a term that most of the listeners will not grasp so those are models that transform a sequence of observations into some internal representation in the system that is sort of extracts the physics. And now they still will not understand that. So let me try again. If I have a, a movie of, of something, some object flying around or so, I'm not interested in how those pixels change. I can't use the change of that pixel in that movie in order to predict where this ball, for instance, is flying. Instead, what I need to do is I need to extract the position of the ball out of the image, then use Newtonian equations to predict where the ball is going, and then use that prediction to then generate an image again one second from now, right? That's how, how an engineer would do it. Now, the models we have devised uh, can do that automatically without explicitly knowing the physics, but by just observing those pictures, by compacting it according to some, some probabilistic rules, and methods, internal representation, which I would almost say represent the physics. It's, of course, not the real physics, right? It's, it's, it's not real positions in Cartesian space and velocities and stuff like that. But it is something which is very close to that, which exactly looks like that and can use. How do you do that? 
I would refer the listener to a paper that we published now. Um, so how, how do you do that is by saying, well, I want to write a compact version of those pixels, and I can do that with a neural network, that compacting, which adheres to two things. First of all, I want each of the dimensions of my compact representation. So let's say I put it in a three-dimensional space. I want them to be independent of the others. So I want to have the principal directions of, of movement that can describe my image. And secondly, I want to ensure that I know the rule which brings my system from observation from one observation to the next and if i for instance well i can say well this uh, this rule needs to be a newtonian equation of, uh, of physics then that will come out of that but i can also just say well it needs to be linear and if it's linear then i can still put those equations of motion um, extract them from there it's a very general rule to say it's it needs to be linear and once i do have those two requirements then i can learn to extract from an image, from a sequence of images, uh, something like the physics of, of movement. And we've done that for drones. We've done that to learn uh, maps of the environment. We have done that indeed for energy optimal control of air pressure in a, in a plant at Wolfsburg. Can, can I ask you one, maybe for a quick note on this one, Patrick, would you allow me to make a comparison if I, if I hear the word latent and I hear the, the way you explain is like, Uh, you're looking at, you know, different states, time series, you know, millisecond one to millisecond two or whatever, and what has changed, and you extract, if I understand correctly, physical information. Would you allow me to make a comparison or see a uh, similarity in, you know, the two gentlemen we just talked about, LSTM, and then the M of the, the memory, which is what they included 25 years ago to say we need we need a piece of memory we, we need the algorithm to understand what was there before so we can then understand is that in another way i assume but something you do as well in a different way no it's uh, i mean lcm is also uh, one way of uh, of doing time series modeling in a recurrent neural network, but it does it totally different. It doesn't use this internal latent representation. So what, what we do is we explicitly map a, a sequence of, of observations, so, so the set of uh, images, a, a movie, on a sequence of internal representations. And those internal representations we shape according to what we want. For instance, uh, we, can, we can shape them as a linear space or can shape them without any form or I can shape them with the equations of motions of a, of a, of a drone or I can I'm just give you examples that I'm... Yeah, yeah. Also, that's totally different. Right. The suggestion was not that the way of doing things, but it was more at a higher level, I thought, to recognize the similarity, the importance of... You know, you know, time series as which which is what we've been talking about. You know, understanding the the, the different state in which the world, the world around us, is in from one millisecond to another one, and you know that's what Sepp and Jürgen, you know, looked at. And applications are somewhere doing it their way. That was not my point. And and you, it is my understanding, also deal with that fact of looking at different states and what is happening between the different states around us. That's I'll give you one more important difference, uh -huh. and that is that our system uses unsupervised learning. Okay. 
whereas an LSTM or, or a recurrent neural network uh, needs supervised learning. That is, I have a sequence of inputs and I map that to a sequence of outputs. In our system, I only have a sequence of inputs. And from that, I t- try to explain future, future states. So the second one is where we use similar models to create a probabilistic description of a system in a physical map. And again, I need to make that palatable, what I just said. Suppose I have, a, have an autonomous vehicle or autonomous robot driving around in a, in a building, and that thing has a number of cameras. And, and indeed, now, how can, you, how can you learn SLAM from that? Uh, there, there are ways of doing that, right? A SLAM is something that uh, has been around for a few decades. But the only thing that SLAM does is, first of all, create a map of your environment, and secondly, give you, give you information on the, your position in that map, both at the same time, right? That's what it stands for, some simultaneous localization and mapping. And we have taken that idea and put that in our probabilistic latent state space models and say, well, let's now take these models that I described before and not learn the, the, the dynamics of, uh, of some some kind of a robot or something like that, but let it, let it instead learn a map of the environment. And uh, of course, then you have some different structure, right? Like, like it's a 3D space and, and, uh, and things like that. But what you now can do is, um, I don't just have SLAM, but I have a probabilistic SLAM, meaning that I don't just have the position of my, the state of my agent, of my robot in my environment, but I have that as a probability density and that allows me then to not just create slam create create a map and create a position on that map but i can also use that to do control in that map so i have now a fully closed system where i can do learning of the map i can get my position but i can also do control i can do optimal exploration and an optimal navigation in that map all of that for the price of one and uh, that's something we've been working on for a few years, and that works even in real time right now. Real time in, in our vocabulary means uh, at 10 hertz. So uh, we can learn the map uh, 10 images per second real time on a normal computer. Patrick, in, in general, what do you do with those kind of developments? Keep them for you, you know, because yep. you've paid for them or, you know, you understand. So this thing started as a discussion I had with one of my employees and said, well, we have these, these models. What can we do with them? Well, I said, well, let's see if we can do slam with that. And he said, I take that challenge. Um, uh, and I'm re- ready in, uh, in three months, he said. That was three years ago. So it was a bit more complex than, than we thought. But now that we have this running, we suddenly find that within the company, there are applications for this. For instance, creating a, uh, a daily map of a factory floor, allowing you to uh, find back objects, but also to do cleaning and to do uh, navigation and bringing tools around and so on and so forth. What you also can do is use that to do uh, maintenance so you can go around a, a factory floor and find areas where problems arise because something suddenly sounds different or looks different than it did yesterday. 
Right. So are you ready to make this available to uh, outside of Volkswagen as well? So, you oh, know, yeah. talking we, so about we open source, yes. So. Okay, very good, very good. So maybe maybe your your view on that then is that changing the world. Robert has a separate podcast in open source and I am of the area, well, maybe not that very much different from you, but I I always need a I don't know, I always need a need a push into the area. I'm not saying this is not good. I'm always looking at the the implications i was part myself maybe four or five years ago five years ago in a company where where i was you know and this is about opc you know it's uh, it's about data maybe you know about it but it's not important and from one day to the other the organization decided we're going to make it open source so there's a company making money with providing tools that's changing from one day to the other And I always need, you know, Robert to explain, not to explain me, but to guide me in this complete new way of thinking that, you know, uh, software is supposed to be not free, not free as in a free beer. But I'm interested in your, in your view as a, you know, as a developer, as a scientist um, of um, algorithms. So let's start in the other way around. First of all, I understand that patents are important for companies. Because it gives a, gives a um, enumeration of your investment in R&D, right? And, and it gives you some competitive advantage. And if you don't do that, then all of the investment that you do in R&D is open for grabs for your competitors. And, and it makes no sense to invest in that. So, yes, exactly. So, so I, I understand that, that part. But once it comes to... Fundamental research and and the, the the difference between fundamental and applied research is that's that's a podcast in itself. What that means, so let's not get down that. But w w once you talk about very principled methodologies, which are really not close to a to an uh, application or not intended for an application in, on the very short term, once you do a patent there, then you stifle development. And I think that's especially true if you, if you look at universities, right? If universities or 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 um, public research institutions, if they try to earn their money uh, by patenting, they are actually hurting themselves quite, quite, quite strongly because, because that will prevent others from taking up that research and making it into applications. So, and now machine learning is, is I think, an excellent example where sharing code and data does making research comparable which was especially true, I don't know, say in the period between 2006 and, and, and maybe 10 years ago or so, or, or 2015, it's a bit less now, but back then it was very important that if you share your data and you share your code, then you can um, have others compare their methods with yours and their results with yours. If you don't do that, then everybody just, just publish something and, and say, well, this is a great thing. But um, I don't know if it's better than the other because there is no way of comparing that. That's the typical case that you have in, in robotics research, right? That's why I think one of the, the reasons why robotics research is, is going so much slower um, than machine learning research, at least in the, in the past decades, because you don't have this common ground and this comparability. So if you want to advance your work and if you want to make sure that your work is understood by others and also others can improve on your work then you have to share it if you don't do that 
well then you can you can certainly certainly do some research and uh, and and so on but but you have no idea i'm you will certainly not get as excellent as the other ones you can you can only do that as as a community we will convince peter we will convince him oh yeah yeah it's not about convincing it's just about understanding yeah so you you say it's still you still need to do your research it's not like you know let's say vw bmw mercedes a couple of other global uh, car brand manufacturers you cannot say i just stop doing my research i just see what the others do they open source and i take it um you know, I just put it in, put it as 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 bluntly like that. That's no way forward, right? You still need to do your own work. Well, you know, you can't just download a library and use it and then be happy with it, right? And even that requires a tremendous amount of expertise because the algorithm itself is just an algorithm and it's not a system. So let's switch to the third approach because uh, we are running out of time. The the third uh, third approach that I'm very proud of and, and that's uh, one that will surprise you is uh, my initiative in ethical and trustworthy ai so i've i've i told you right i started with uh, with neural networks in the 1980s in the, in 1986 or 7 or so something like that and that means that i also went through one of those ai winters which i would say started in in about 1990 uh, Five or was it two, somewhere somewhere like that, somewhere around those times. I think it was 1995 when support vector machines then became large and everybody loved them. And then neural networks were dead, and we were all depressed and started doing something else. And I didn't want to. I I, I don't want to be there again. So when I started working at Volkswagen, and, and now it's a bit later, 2000, end of 2017 or so, I, I saw initiatives like PI, the, the Partnership on AI. And this is an initiative started by, I don't know, uh, f Facebook, uh, Apple, uh, Amazon, uh, IBM, uh, companies like that. Probably Google was there as well. I, I don't remember exactly. And what I did back then is say, well, we as list of companies will only use... AI for good, and we will ensure that uh, no people are harmed, and so on. So you can write a whole codex of uh, of good intentions, and of course there are good intentions, but that doesn't mean that you can actually do that. Because as 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 a programmer or as a researcher or as a developer, um, the fact that I don't want to have bias in my algorithm, what does it mean in how I train my neural network? There is no way to uh, translate such a, such a code of conduct to actionable items. So I first thought of, uh, of joining Pi as, a, as, as Volkswagen and I talked to them and then I found their conditions uh, r ridiculous and actually I didn't like how to do it. So I said, well, I can do this better myself. So I started uh, an initiative, it's called Etami, which is now a large initiative started off as, as 17 companies we're now growing into uh, into 100 companies and um, not just companies also research institutions of course universities and uh, research centers where we develop processes and tools in order to create transparency and and quality mostly into the development of machine learning software and applications so prevent the situation where you say well okay I've got my data set, I trained my neural network, I got uh, 0.4 as an answer, and I think that's quite excellent. Let's put this thing in production. And I, I know that's still being done, and we all know that that's not how you should do it. So what we do is create methodologies to do data 
uh, not just curation, but data logging, data understanding, of course, also uh, model and, and training quality and, and logging and documentation, but also uh, understand how deployment of these models must be done in order to be able to react when a system does something stupid which they always will, of course, but you need to detect it and then repair it. So create a whole quality process from the idea of a system you want to uh, make up to its final deployment so that people, including myself, have trust in what's, what's out there. When I talk to some big industrial players and then sometimes they say, is it not also an idea to protect the market because industrial companies are used to norms, etc., etc.? And it's not only about trustworthy and also to protect the market for European companies. No, I don't see that. Okay. You mean protect against whom? What do you mean exactly? Protect against uh, big tech software companies who are not familiar to use the norms, etc., etc.? No, it's really about creating methodologies that that I, as an end user, can trust and feel safe with. That's what it is about. Okay. Yeah, of course, of course, those big companies they are heavily impacted by these, but not just those, right? Just as well, any company here in in Europe. Which use yeah, sure, but for them, that's common that there is a norm and there's a regulation on, on, on stuff like that. And I think sometimes it's a little bit, only maybe 5%, they are happy because it's also protecting the market, I think. Mm. I think that uh, Google and Amazon, all the other ones, have as many people in Brussels, <laughs> like probably VW or you know SAP or whoever. Absolutely. Uh, Patrick, if I may, we, we are in strong agreement, me as well personally, for many, many years regarding trustworthy AI. So I assume you're looking forward to the EU AI Act. You already mentioned the EU Data Act. Uh, what I just heard from you explaining, is that kind of, you know, you're, you're ready, you're, you're prepared for, or are they, are they, if you say ML ops and stuff like that, does it go a lot further, a lot more detail than what the EU AI Act is actually going to be expecting from a company like Feedup and all the other ones? So first of all, uh, certainly not ready, right? The, the AI Act uh, is, is the, the, the parliament is going to vote in early March, and then we expect the regulation to be finished by the end of 23, and then it will not be into force until beginning 26. So there's still some time. The, the fact that, that we know to a large part of what is going to be in there doesn't mean that it's easy to comply by it and that's work that is I actually I took on myself and I'm responsible for that topic in Volkswagen currently be careful what you wish for right in your life but there you go and yes certainly we are going to go further than just adhere by this AI act and we're certainly also going to look into the gray zone of of ethical implications where you can And we actually have or are in the process of developing an ethical codex uh, for Volkswagen AI as well. That takes a while because you have to get all uh, all parties of such a huge company on board. That's, uh, that's always a bit tricky, but... Uh, But that's coming, and of course, the, uh, there's nothing nothing out of the normal in in that uh, ethical codex. There, it's very similar to all the other ones. But we will ensure that we will try to adhere by these ethical code codices, also by the high level expert group on AI and the OECD one and the uh, United Nations. 
UNEC one, not UNEC, the other one. I always forget that. And of course, then by the AI Act. But of course, there are also similar legislative frameworks in other countries in the world, right? And we also have to abide by these if we put our products somewhere else uh, on the market. So... So that's a, that's a nice challenge. That's a topic in itself, right? I mean, that's where we, I, I'm closer to you, Robert, where you say, sure, I mean, different parts of the world, different norms, you know, sometimes we'd like to be, and we work together on technical norms all the time, you know, China, United States, Europe, everybody, and, and many, many, many times agree on technical norms. If we come to norms of trustworthiness, of course, we do not always agree. But also the US has norms, right? I mean, it's not that it's a lawless countries. No, 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 no. But different, different norms. If we talk yeah. about right, so so right, then the expectation is that if you're gonna, you know, put your cars on the Chinese market, then you know, I don't know what your ethical norms are going to be talking about, and then you get into politics and all kind. I mean, that the point is, you cannot have one set of ethical guidelines for the world, right? Because the world is not that, um, you know, agreed upon what. Uh, what norms or what ethics to use absolutely right and that's a fascinating uh, discussion which i would i would love to join but uh, yes, i'm sure <laughs> one wouldn't come to an answer yeah yeah and and i mean, I mean we, we actually i i had a very interesting call with uh, people from uh, volkswagen uh, nutzfahrzeuge in, in Hanover recently on on the ethics of autonomous driving and I know nothing about autonomous driving and I know nothing about ethics but why but do they call you? <laughs> <laughs> well because I, I Wrong say number. those words all the time. Okay. <laughs> um, no but but it's but it's fascinating because you get into into ethics like okay what about what about animal life, right? So um, how do you how do you discern that? And and there are societies where crabs are listed as uh, sentient animals. So do you drive over a uh, a school of crabs if the if you have some if you avoid la di da you know you so you get it's 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 very interesting stuff and there are certainly some uh, some technical ways um, about that but you shouldn't start uh, solving ethical questions as a technical company you should address them but you shouldn't you shouldn't uh, answer those. So what are your plans for, for the coming year? This year, we have a uh, crisis on our hands, right? A global, global crisis. And that puts forth some fascinating, uh, not just financial challenges, but certainly also financial challenges, uh, which we need to address. I, one of my big things for the next year is uh, to make this this uh, association that I mentioned, ATAMI, I call it, uh, on ethical and trustworthy AI, um, make that fly and make that really large. I'm also um, going a bit stronger into deployment of the methodologies that we have been developing in the last six years. So slowly building that up and at the same time have my fun with the administration of a company with 600,000 employees. Okay, perfect. We wish you all the best, uh, Patrick. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for this interview. Thank you, Patrick. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.